Well, we get to continue our Revelation series this morning. And uh, just before we dive in, I want to let you know that I will not be here next week. I've been asked to speak at uh, Crossroads Church in Red Deer, Alberta. And so, yeah, kind of a unique opportunity. Um, They're a very small church of about 3,500 people. So I've uh, I've never quite spoken to a crowd that large. Um, So you can pray for me. That'll be an exciting adventure. And I also get to uh, meet up with a couple of different people. Mark Buchanan used to be a pastor at New Life. Some of you know him or have read his books. I get to spend an afternoon with him. Uh, so lots of good things. Looking forward to that. But here's the most exciting thing is that when I am gone, uh, Pete Klopper gets to preach next week. Yeah. So uh, Pete and I have been working together and he has worked super hard on his sermon and you are in for a treat. Pete is going to keep our Revelation series going, and he's going to kick it out of the park. So you can look forward to that. Well, today we're in Revelation chapter 11. If you have your print Bible, you can open it to Revelation 11. Start the app on your smartphone. Uh, The verses also be on the screen. Now, Revelation 11, these 13 verses from 1 to 13, a lot of scholars feel these are the most tricky verses in all of Revelation to try and understand and interpret. Bruce Metzger, one of the most famous New Testament scholars, this is what he says, Revelation 11 is an almost bewildering interweaving of symbols. So every Tuesday morning, if you drop into the church here at Ocean View, you will find us doing a staff meeting. And one of the things I make Nathan and Katrina do is something called a life journal. And there's a little acronym, S-O-A-P, SOAP. And it stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. And so what we do is we'll read the passage. So we read 11, Revelation 11, 1 through 13. And we read it out loud, kind of take turns, do two or three verses each. And then we read it by ourselves quietly. And we have to pick one verse that really jumps out at us. And then we pick that one verse and we write it out. That's the S, the Scripture. And then what do we observe about it? We, we look at that verse and we think about it. We ask questions about it. We write down all of our little point form notes about what we, we think that verse means. And then we make it a personal application. How does that apply to my life? And then the last step is a little one sentence prayer. So I made Katrina and Nathan do that this week on uh, Revelation 11. And about halfway through, they all start laughing. And they go, Darren, this is so confusing. Good luck on Sunday, buddy. Good luck. So many commentators and people have gone down bizarre roads when they have read Revelation 11. They completely misunderstand the symbolism and what it means. And I found a video this week that perfectly captures what it's like when you are completely misunderstood. So we're going to turn down the lights, crank up the sound, and we're going to play a video for you. Hello. How much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. (laughs) Did you hear me? You're getting robbed. Ameriquest, an open-minded, equal opportunity. 
Okay, it's so awesome. Let's watch it again. How much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. Did you hear me? You're getting robbed. Oh, it's just gold. Like, what is she doing? She's got some sort of electric cattle prod thing. It's unbelievable. Well, <laughs> that's how misunderstood Revelation chapter 11 feels. Uh, but fortunately for us, we have three things working in our favor. We have some good methodology we've been developing over the series. We have the Holy Spirit who helps guide us into truth. And number three, we have some excellent scholars to help us along the right path of interpretation. We're going to jump into this passage and read it today. And I'm going to invite Don Bowden up. And Don is going to read for us. And uh, he's going to do our scripture reading today. So Revelation 11 Verses 1 through 13. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. All right, so a whole bunch of very confusing symbols in there. And I think it's most helpful, as I worked on this sermon this week, to, to go through the symbols and try to unpack those. What does each one mean? And then we'll be able to pull out the meaning and the application for us here this morning. So the first one I'd like to tackle is the symbol of the temple. Now, most of you have seen a, a picture of the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Absolutely one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Phenomenal achievement. Incredibly beautiful. Can John in Revelation 11 be referring to the actual brick and mortar temple? 
Well, no, he can't. John received this revelation in AD 96, and 26 years before, in AD 70, the Romans had come in and absolutely crushed and leveled Jerusalem and the temple along with it, completely and utterly destroyed. So John is not being told to measure measure a literal building. It doesn't exist anymore. Instead, he is being told to measure the new temple of God. What is the new temple of God? It is God's people. This is a huge theme in the second half of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? And again in 1 Corinthians 6.19 he says, do, not, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And then the people in Corinth must have been pretty forgetful about this theme because Paul wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth and he again reminds them of this truth. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And just in case you thought it was only Paul who had this idea that God's people are his temple, well, the apostle Peter restates it in his letter, 1 Peter 2.5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, so we can clearly say that the temple of God is now the people of God, God's redeemed people. Now that we know that the temple as a whole represents, through history we are in solid ground to interpret the next symbol, the outer court. This is a model reconstruction of the temple in the first century. And the outer court is the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And they were never allowed to go into the inner court where the Jewish people were. That was reserved for Jews. But this vision is after Jesus. This is because of what Jesus has done. He's united Jew and Gentile. So what on earth does it mean now to be the outer court? Well, Daryl Johnson, our scholar, is helpful. This is what he says. John is being told that the people of God, the church who made up of Jews and Gentiles, will find themselves in conflict with an unbelieving world for 42 months. God will protect the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where his new priesthood, bought by the blood of the Lamb, now lives. But the outer court cannot be protected. It can only be converted or judged well now we kind of move into the symbol of time and this number of 42 months keeps coming up 42 months if you count it out is equal to three and a half years three and a half years if you multiply it by the days is actually 1260 days and john uses all three of those numbers they're all equal but they're all symbols And we've seen that throughout the entire book of Revelation up to this point. Every time we encounter a number, it's symbolic. It's never a statistic. It's a symbol. And 42 months is used a lot of times in the Bible. The prophet Elijah preached repentance to the nation of Israel. 
And God caused a three and a half year, a 42 month drought. When Israel wandered from the Egypt all the way through the desert and eventually arrived at the promised land, there was 42 stages in their wandering. 42 keeps coming up over and over in the Bible. Clearly the number is a symbol, not a statistic. Daryl Johnson says it appears that the symbol stands for the whole time the new temple, that is the people of God, are under pressure from the unbelieving nations. The whole time the church is in the world, caught in the crunch of the clashing kingdoms. And we've been talking about the last three sermons as God's kingdom is always invading our world. It always comes up against the kingdoms of this world. The, the sinful uh, elements of every culture around the world. Every culture has beautiful, wonderful, amazing aspects. And every single culture has elements in it that are greedy and selfish and narcissistic. And when God's kingdom and those kingdoms hit, they collide. And over and over and over again, just like the people in the seven churches, John was a pastor to these people. They're being persecuted. They're caught in the middle of the crunch between the two kingdoms. And John says, to some degree, Christians will always be caught between the two kingdoms. Well, now we kind of come to the, the major symbol of the passage, and it's actually three symbols. John uses three symbols for the same thing. He talks about two lampstands. Then he talks about two olive trees. And he talks about two witnesses. And he says all three of those symbols are for the same thing. Bible scholar Edwin Walhut clears it up for us. This is what he says. John has been told to continue his prophesying, but he is only one person. Now there are two. They are the witnesses of Jesus Christ. They are all who share the prophetic ministry of the gospel itself, namely every Christian believer. The two witnesses embody the combined and cumulative testimony of all churches, of the whole of Christianity itself. So these two olive trees, two lampstands, two witnesses, they're meant to symbolize the church from the moment Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection until he comes back. All of us, the last 2,000 years of church history and however long there is in the future. And we don't know that. This is the church all over the world. This is the church today as it stretches all around the world, from Argentina to Finland, from Canada to Malaysia, from Australia to Uzbekistan. This is the church in the future. Collectively, we are the two witnesses. For the next three symbols, John leans heavenly on the imagery from the first half of the Bible. It says, If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So now that we know that the two witnesses are the church, this sounds a little violent, a little weird. Like the church opens its mouth and fire comes out? What is going on here? Well, John is, is picking up the symbolism from the prophet Elijah. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 1 where Ahaziah, one of Judah's worst all-time kings, sends one of his servants to inquire of the pagan Philistine god 
Beelzebub for wisdom about decisions he needed to make as a king. Now we hear that and we go, oh yeah. But you got to understand, Judah, the nation, was God's people. Their king was supposed to be one of their spiritual leaders. He was supposed to be leading them into worship of the one true God. What's he doing? The exact opposite. He's sending one of his servants to go inquire of a dead, lifeless, Philistine, pagan god, Beelzebub. And I love the line that God gives Elijah. So God says to Elijah, look, there's going to be a guy coming down the road and he is on a disastrous mission. I want you to go confront him. And this is the line that God gives Elijah to tell the king. 2 Kings 1.16. This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? So, the sermon, the servant is alarmed. He meets this fearsome prophet of God and he goes, okay, I'm not going. Turns around, goes all the way back to the king and said, I met this guy. He was unbelievable. This is the message he told me to tell you. Well, this king is so evil, he doesn't repent. He doesn't listen to what God's telling him. He says, I'm sending you back. I want you to go consult that pagan Philistine God. And this time I'm giving you a company of 50 soldiers. And when you meet Elijah the prophet, I want you to surround him and kill him. So God tells Elijah, he says, so by the way, 50 guys are coming to kill you. Elijah says, no problem. So the guy comes, the 50 soldiers are there. They surround Elijah. He's up on a little bit of a hill and he stands up and he goes, I warned you guys. I told you this is not what God wants. And they're like, we don't care. He says, okay. And he says, God, now would be a good time for the fire. Burns them up, 50 soldiers. It's pretty disastrous. The servant escapes, runs back to the king and said, it's unbelievable. What a disaster. The king is still unrepentant sends him with another 50 soldiers. Like, talk about thick in the head. So the whole scene replays. Elijah says, no problem. I warned you guys. He's like, don't do this. This doesn't turn out well for you. And they come to attack him. He's like, God, fire again, please. Burns up another 50 soldiers. Unbelievably, the king sends a third group. And the commander of the group He's smart enough to go, this is not good. And he goes up and he pleads with Elijah. He's like, please don't call down fire from heaven on us. So that's the background. That's the story. Now it starts to make a little bit more sense. If the two witnesses are the church down through the ages, and when we are opposed This idea that fire would come from our mouths and consume anyone who opposes us, that sounds pretty harsh. I mean, think of how that would play out in Ladysmith. I go outside, maybe I'm working on my fence, my neighbor gets mad at me, we have a conversation. I I come back in the house and Lori says, well, how did that turn out? And I said, well, he ticked me right off. I just opened my fire, burned him to a crisp. That's not really going to help us proclaim the love of Jesus here in Ladysmith. So that's clearly not what it means. But building on the imagery of Elijah, what did he do? He went and confronted 
the king. He confronted his messenger. He, he stopped him. He warned him. That's the role of the church. We're meant to say to our broader culture, stop, listen. There's a better way. God loves you. And we're to do that in our actions and in our words. But at the end of history, when God comes back, when Jesus returns, and there is the moment of final judgment, that's when the person who has persistently, like King Ahaziah, refused all of the messages that God has sent, all of the people, all of the times when God says, stop, turn around, I'm here, I love you. At that point, they will face God's fiery wrath. And all you need to do is think a little bit about world history. Ask the persecuted church in Rwanda or Eritrea or China or North Korea. Christians have died for their faith over and over and over. Will wrongdoers be held to account by God's final judgment? You bet they will. Well, the next two symbols... They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Again, those are symbols of God's final judgment. They're symbols in exactly the same way as the fire out of our mouths. The church doesn't just get to go, you know what? It's kind of rough right now. We're just going to start turning lakes and oceans into blood. Boom, boom, boom. We're, we're just going to start causing droughts all over the world. We don't get to do that. What we do get to do is warn our culture. All right. The next symbol is the beast that comes up from the abyss that will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. So the beast is symbolic of Satan and all his demonic forces that oppose God and his will in our world. That's, that one's not too difficult to figure out. But that fact that he can kill the two witnesses representative of the church in every age and the body of the church will lie dead for three and a half days, that's a whole lot of confusing. What is going on here? How can Jesus allow this for his church? Well, one of the me- clues to the meaning is where it occurs. It says it's in the great city of Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom is a city, if you're not familiar with it, in the Old Testament. It's kind of the worst example of human sin and evil gone totally haywire. The city is absolutely as corrupt as you could imagine. And God warns it and finally judges it. Well, by John's time in AD 96, Sodom was long, long, long in the past. It hadn't been a functioning city for probably close to a thousand years. So clearly he's not literally talking about the city of Sodom. And then he says it's the city, the great city of Sodom in Egypt. Well, Egypt's not a city, it's a country. But what do these two symbolize? Well, Sodom symbolizes humanity. It's its most immoral and corrupt. And Egypt was the great empire of the ancient world. It symbolizes human civilization 
at its most ruthless and oppressive. And together, these symbols tell us that they represent any and every city that resists the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and persecute Jesus' witnesses. It is the part of every major city around the world that embodies... Uh, could, we have a slide for this. There we go. Next slide. Self-sufficiency in place of dependence on the Creator, achievement in place of repentance, oppression in the place of faith, the beast in place of the Lamb, and murder in place of the witnesses to God. Every Christian in the world knows about the city of Sodom and Egypt. And it's true. If you read accounts of what life is like in Mexico City, one of the biggest cities in our world, it is pretty much a constant replay of kidnapping, murder, all those kind of things. Now, does Mexico City have beautiful, wonderful aspects to it? Absolutely. (coughs) But all major cities around the world do have some of Sodom in them and some of Egypt. Well, the other clue for this really confusing symbol is how long the two witnesses are killed by the beast. It's only three and a half days a very, very short period of time. It says, Then the breath of God comes into them and stands on their feet. The point of the whole thing is that the church of Jesus Christ cannot ultimately be destroyed. There are many, many examples in church history where it looked like the Christian church was in absolute, total dire straits, that it was in real trouble and it was at risk of dying out. And every single time that is about to occur in history, God sends a fresh breath of new life into the church and it rises again. China is an incredible example in our day and age. When Mao Zedong took over China after the Second World War, imposed communist rule on China, he kicked out every foreign missionary out of China. He persecuted the Christian church extremely heavily. And we in the West, as people were going through the 1960s, 70s, even into the 80s, all we heard about was that the persecuted church in China was under incredible duress. And everyone wondered, how many Christians can there be left in China? They've been persecuted for four decades. There can't be hardly anybody left. And then in the 90s and the 2000s, as China began to open up and embrace capitalism, they're still communist, I don't really get it, but anyways, as they started to open up their country, it was a shock to the world that, you know what, when the church was supposed to die, God had done the absolute opposite. The most conservative estimates today put the number of Christian believers in China to almost one hundred million they had gone from this tiny minuscule speck when Mao Zedong took over to over a 10 percent of the entire population scholars feel that in another 15 years China might be the most populated Christian country on earth that is incredible and it's exactly what John predicted and prophesied that every single time that beast rises up, that the two witnesses representative of the church are killed, it's a very short period of time that the church goes down and it always 
rises again. The breath of God gives us new life. Well, the final symbol we want to unlock is the earthquake of verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. One-tenth. We know enough by now that we know it's not a statistic. It's a symbol. We know this from all the numbers we've seen in the book of Revelation up till now. One-tenth and 7,000 people. These are actually symbols of God's mercy. Mercy? Well, in the first half of the Bible, when God judged Israel and he sent them into exile in Assyria, first the nation of Israel in the north, and then Judah into Babylon, God judged them and he, he allowed nine-tenths or 90% of them to go into exile or be killed and ultimately dispersed among the nations. Only one-tenth was actually restored and brought back to the land. In Amos chapter 5, verse 3, God says, A city of 1,000 will have 100 left. A city of 100 will have 10 left. But here in Revelation 11, all those fractions are reversed. It isn't that one-tenth gets saved. It's that nine-tenths get saved. Nine-tenths are saved from the earthquake. 63,000 people are saved and only 7,000 die. Well, why the reversal? Why the reversal from God's judgment in the first half of the Bible to his judgment in the second half? The difference is the faithful witness of the church. The two lampstands, the two olive trees, the two witnesses. It is due to the faithful witness of the church down through history. Now that is a profound realization for us this morning. You and I and all the churches around the world affect history in a more profound way than we actually know. So we've done the majority of the hard work figuring out what each symbol means, but what is the overall message? I'm so glad you asked. I've entitled my second point, Symbolically Profound, What Do They Mean? The These 13 verses in Revelation 11 occur between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. As we've been reading and as Pete's going to speak about the seventh trumpet next week, each one is kind of a, a woe, a warning of disaster. And this is the little interlude in between trumpet six and seven. What is the church? What are God's people who are caught in the crunch of those two kingdoms What are they supposed to be and do? That is the central question. And this passage tells us overwhelmingly the answer is we are to be a witness. This chapter explains how that plays out. A witness gives testimony in a court of law. We all know that. The judge says to the lawyer, you may call your first witness to the stand. So if we are the witnesses... Who is on trial? Our friend Daryl Johnson is once again very helpful. He says Jesus is on trial. Why? For claiming to bring into the world another kingdom, which transforms and displaces all other kingdoms. For claiming to be able to repair broken humanity. For claiming to be able to set humanity free from the powers of evil and sin and death. For claiming to be the center 
of all things. And in this trial in the great city, Jesus calls his people to be witnesses, to give evidence that he is correct. Jesus actually said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. His final recorded words before he ascended to heaven. Listen to Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Think about this image of, the, of a courtroom and a trial, and that we are the witnesses and Jesus on trial. If Jesus was dragged into the Supreme Court of Canada, every Christian in this country would stand up and give testimony. Millions would be lined up at the courthouse waiting for their turn to explain how Jesus had changed their life. Millions would testify that it is his example and his teachings and his sacrificial death that teach us how to live. Ocean View Community Church, we would have our turn. We would get up and testify that every benevolent need in the community we give money to, every Christmas hamper we fill for needy families at Christmas time through the Ladysmith Resource Center. Why do we do that? Because Jesus commands us to look after the poor. Every park build that we've helped with, every dollar raised to replace the walking trail bridge on Holland Creek Trail. Why? Because Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to do good deeds and they will profoundly affect the community around us. Every dollar raised. Thank you, Katrina. You get a raise. Every dollar raised and form filled out so that the Srita family, our Syrian Muslim, Muslim refugee family stuck in Turkey, can have an opportunity at a new life in Canada. Why do we do that? Because Jesus commands us to look after the foreigner. Each of us would gladly go to the Supreme Court of Canada and give testimony. None of us would sit at home and watch Jesus endure a trial while we sit in our armchair and watch it on TV. Well, guess what? The book of Revelation says Jesus is on trial in this world, and we are called to be his witnesses. We have no option but to go out there and bring our testimony to a hurting and dying world that Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to any of us. It's okay to say amen at that point. So the last piece of the puzzle is how exactly are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to include being a witness in our daily lives? You and I, day in and day out, a part of this long chain of witnesses going back to the very first disciples. Fortunately, the very last verse in our passage tells us how. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the key, clothed in sackcloth. What did sackcloth mean in the ancient world? It was what you wore when you were in a spirit of repentance and mourning. When the prophet Jonah was sent to the wicked city of Nineveh, What did the king do? He said, well, we're all doomed. God's going to judge us. I want every single person in this entire city to put on sackcloth, to humble ourselves, to get down, prostrate ourselves before God, and maybe in his mercy, God will forgive us. When you wear sackcloth, you are humbled. 
You are asking for God's mercy and grace. John's, Jesus says to John, to everyone who is part of the church for thousands of years to follow, when you go and testify for me, you are going to do it in a spirit of humility and repentance. My dad's cousin, Ron Phillips, grew up, growing up, we called him Uncle Ron. He had a sticker on his fishing boat. And this is what it says. It said, Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Now, some people look at that and kind of use it as a defense for their actions. Essentially, hey, I'm not perfect either. I mess up. And that is absolutely true. But in the light of Revelation 11, I think I see a second meaning in that bumper sticker. It's actually supposed to be our attitude as we testify to Jesus in our world. We're to go in a spirit of humility to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. I'm no better than you, but I am forgiven. Let me explain what following Jesus means, how it changed my life now and for all eternity. I found a profound old Negro spiritual this week. The song's entitled, That's Another Witness for My Lord. I want to listen to these words of this old Negro spiritual as we close this sermon today. Don's going to read it for us. Read in Genesis, you understand. Methuselah was the oldest man. He lived 969, died and went to heaven in due time. Methuselah is a witness for my Lord. Methuselah is a witness for my Lord. Isaiah mounted on the wheel of time, spoke to God Almighty way down the line, said, O Lord, to me reveal, how can this vile race be healed? God said to them, Tell the Son of Man, unto them will be born a king. Tell them that believe upon his way, they shall rest in the latter day. Isaiah was a witness for my Lord. Isaiah was a witness for my Lord. There was a man among the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he didn't believe. He went to the master in the night and told him to take out or human sight. You are the Christ, I'm sure it's true, for none do the miracles that you do. But how can a man, now old in sin, turn back still and be born again? Christ said, man, if you want to be wise, you better repent and be baptized. Believe on me, the Son of Man, then you will be born again. Wasn't that a witness for my Lord? Wasn't that a witness for my Lord? I think I'm ready to be a witness. How about you? Carmen, come and pray for us. Let's pray.